Thanks, Darcy. Yep, got it. Thank you very much. Let's take a moment to get settled here. You know, it's a real privilege to be able to come and speak at your fellowship. You guys have made me feel so welcome. How many of you were here last week? Good, you, you came back. Wow. I feel even more privileged. Um, last week, if you recall, um, I talked about um, archaeology and the Bible. I called it digging the Bible. And uh, if you remember, at the end of what I was saying uh, was that there's you know, lots more to be discovered. Things are being found, you know, if not a daily basis, a monthly basis, yearly basis. And there's lots of stuff that's sitting on shelves and gathering dust that nobody really knows what to do with. And uh, I found it interesting this week that my social media, and perhaps some of you guys saw it as well, uh, was regarding this, this scroll that had been sitting in a box or sitting in an office somewhere, some archaeologists digs, um, for, oh, the past... 40 or 50 years, it was 1970. And uh, it had been found in a dig in En Gedi. And I know some of you have been to Israel, you've probably been to En Gedi. I, I am going there to Israel next March and I'm really looking forward. I hope we go to En Gedi. But it was found in an old synagogue or in the ruins of a synagogue that had burnt down. And uh, this scroll had been reduced to basically a lump of coal. And they didn't want to touch it or try to open it because it was just disintegrate. So last year, this news story is about a year old, um, the discoverer of this scroll took it to uh, one of the Israeli antiquities um, labs and uh, they used a CT scanner and 3D digital software to digitally unroll this scroll. And, and what they found was that it was a copy of Leviticus. And they estimate that the scroll is between 1,500 and 2,000 years old. And when they read the text of Leviticus, um, this is what they said. The En Gedi scroll's writings are nearly 100% identical to the me medieval text both in consonants and in paragraph divisions, suggesting that copies of the book of Leviticus did not differ much over thousands of years. So that tells us, guys, that when we have the Bible in our hands, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the complete Bible, these were first written down on, on parchments, either papyri or on um, animal skins, and some of these scrolls uh, are still in existence today and they're finding more and more all the time. And you hear the, the very tired old argument saying, well, how can we be sure that the Bible hasn't changed? You know, Muslims will tell you that, you know, we, we have the truth in uh, um, the Koran uh, because you guys changed the, 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 the real wording. And you hear that argument all the time and it just, it just isn't true. And science is beginning to show that. And today I want to talk about a scroll that was found. If you want to turn to 2 Kings 22 with me. You know, it really is a joy to be invited to speak. Uh, I love going to other churches. 
uh, see the passion of the, the worship team, the hearts of the people that I get to know, the testimonies that I hear of, of lives changed by the power of God. And it's just so encouraging and it's just uh, a joy. But let's read verse, uh, from verse one. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boza, Bozka. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Let's just pray. Father, I pray that you would unroll the word today, that we would look at the example of this man, Josiah, and see how his life was changed uh, when your word came to him. Father, I pray that um, our lives would be changed as well. Father, as Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray, Lord, as we read and, and hear the word of God together, that our lives would indeed be changed as you have promised. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we're looking at, at 2 Kings, and First and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles, um, First and 2 Chronicles are basic copies of First and 2 Kings, and you'll find portions of First and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles, throughout other uh, portions of Scripture, um, the prophets, for example, Isaiah, and so on and so forth. Um, but here in, in Kings, what we have seen since the death of Solomon, we have seen successive kings to the point shortly after Joseph, or, um, Solomon's death, um, the kingdom was actually divided. The kingdom of Israel was divided. We had Israel, uh, and then we had um, the tribe of Judah, and they basically became two distinct separate nations, if you will. Israel really started a quick decline, successive kings, uh, just horrible, horrible people. Judah fared a little bit better. And Josiah now comes on the scene, and he becomes king when he's eight years old. And Josiah would become one of the best kings that Judah ever had. As I said, he became king at the age of eight. And as he was being raised up to be the king, he was being mentored by uh, the officials of the court. Other scriptures tell us that when he was 16 years old, he began in earnest to seek after God. And he began to model his kingdom after his great, 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 some odd great grandfather, David. And then we read in verse three, and now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Saphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hands of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work, to repair the damages of the house to carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. So what had happened by the time Josiah had become king, there had been successive kings before him and uh, some were good, most were awful. Uh, they allowed the, the temple, um, Solomon's temple, to 
decay. Um, sometimes it was used as a, a house of worship for uh, pagan gods, for uh, um, all, all manners of, uh, of uh, heathen deities. Um, the stuff that went on in the house of God at that time is enough to curl your hair. But uh, by the time Josiah gets there, there had been some attempts to restore the temple. And one of the things that had been done was that there had been uh, an offering box placed and that anybody who wanted to contribute to the rebuilding of the temple could just go ahead and put their money in it and then the, the priests would be responsible for ensuring the work of, of reconstruction. But the priests were unfaithful. Uh, many of them uh, actually were worshiping false gods um, and, and they just weren't doing what the priests were supposed to do. And if you uh, know the Old Testament at all, when the priestly line was made, they were given explicit instructions of how to care for the temple. Uh, each division of priests had a specific role to play. There were the Levites which supported them and all these things. But by the time jo Josiah comes on the scene, the temple was in a, in a real poor state of repair. It was filled with garbage and all kinds of stuff. And so we see then that under his reign, repairs to the temple was beginning to make up for the years of neglect. And it was during these repairs that an exciting discovery was made. And they found the scroll of the book of the law. Now, when you go to a synagogue, even today, if you walk in, at the front of the synagogue, there will be... Um, what is called an ark. It's, it's a cabinet in which the scrolls are kept. And then whoever is giving um, the presentation that day will go into the cabinet, retrieve one of the scrolls, and begin to read from a portion of the scroll. And it's, it's this ark, which had obviously been buried under all of the garbage that was in that synagogue. And in that synagogue that I just told you about where they had found this burnt scroll, that's obviously where that scroll and other scrolls like it had been found, except that it had been burnt and it had been um, burnt to a, a cinder. So they found the book of the law. Now the book of the law specifically refers to the first five books of the Bible. It's also known as the Torah. Um, Often we talk about the law, that as, as Christians, you know, we're, we, we follow the law of God. We're talking about scripture in, in its entirety. But in this particular case, when it speaks of the book of the law, it's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Let's continue reading in verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, Kind of looking at these scriptures and then also seeing uh, other scriptures uh, found elsewhere in the Old Testament, it seems to be inferring that when this book of the law was found in the temple and the, and the priest read it, it was really the first time perhaps in his lifetime that he actually laid hands on the book of the law. They may have had portions of, of other scriptures, some of the prophets perhaps, but the actual first five books of the Bible, this was probably the first time that he had read it. 
And so he excitedly took it to the king, and he said, hey, we found this book, and Shaphan read it before the king. I find a, a really sad notation at this point when I, when I think about these things, that the book of the law had remained lost in the temple for such a long period of time. It's even sadder, perhaps, to say that today, in many churches, the book of the law is lost as well. The scriptures are no longer, no longer taught. Um, you know, I've, I've been to other places, gone to church, where a portion of scripture is read, and then there's a lot of talk, very little of it pertaining to that scripture. Uh, it, it's almost like scripture is sort of an addendum to what is being said, and, and that's wrong, in my opinion. It's backwards. Scripture should take front and center to everything that we do as a church. It really, it really is sad to know that, that there are many churches that no longer teach the word of God today. Um, not that long ago, uh, CBC uh, gave a little mini documentary on uh, a particular church. It was of the United Church, and you know we know that the United Church is quite liberal. But this particular church, the pastor, who who was a woman, came out and said that she no longer believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior, but she insisted that that wasn't contrary to what they as a church believed that they had enough room for every belief. And she didn't see any reason for her to step down. And this, this became quite an issue, you would imagine, uh, for the congregation, surprisingly, in, in a way, because they are quite liberal. Uh, but this, this battle is still going on. And she's in a, in a United Church in Vancouver somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where. But uh, you know, if you're interested in reading about it, you can go online and, and kind of dig into it a little bit. But... These, these things, I truly believe, happen because, because of the book of the law, because it's lost in the temple today. But we should also note that there are those who claim Christ, who call themselves Christians, who don't read or study the Bible much for themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, we see that a, a Christian, a believer, is called the temple of God. Well, if we're the temple, all more for the reason for the word of God to reside in us. We, we probably have a number of Bibles, the various translations in our house. I, I know I probably have maybe 15 or 20 different Bibles. Um, but, you know, to make the reading of the word of God, uh, a discipline is something that we should all strive for. Because when we become Christians, that, that is, you know, when, when we say we become Christians, it's when we believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. As John writes in, in 1 John, uh, or John 1 verse 12, we believe and receive. And it's at that point where the Holy Spirit of God comes into us and, and makes us his child. It's only when we believe and receive that we can claim ourselves to be a child of God. Jesus is to be our Lord and Savior. And through Christ, we know the Holy Spirit of God begins to do a work in us 
because he resides in us. Now, when I joined the armed forces many years ago, I had to go through basic training and I was on the East Coast, I lived on the West Coast, and every week we looked forward to mail call. And we were all hoping we'd get a letter from home, you know, either from our parents or our brothers or sisters or a loved one. I was looking forward to that as well. And as soon as I got the, the letter, I would read them. I would read through it. And then through the week, I'd probably read through it again. And I would lovingly keep these letters in my, in my uh, kit box. And I still have them to this day because they, they were important to me. It, it, it is a testimony of a, of a life that I lived many years ago and things that were said. Some good, some not so good. But you know, that's okay because it's how we, how we learn and how we grow. And that's exactly what the Lord wants for us because the Holy Spirit who is in each and every one of us is the one who leads and guides and instructs us. You know, when I first became a Christian, I, I couldn't identify a, a sin if my life depended on it. Because as a non-Christian, everything was okay. Oh, there were some things that I thought, ah, those you know, aren't quite right, but you know, to call it a sin or not a sin, or you know, to know what the commandments say or what the precepts say or the, the principles behind these kind of things, I couldn't tell you. But as I grew in Christ, as I got to know his word and got to know my Lord and Savior through his word, I began to understand how he wanted me to live. I mean, what is asked of us? We are to walk humbly. We are to walk holy and righteous. Not alone, but with our God, with Christ. And so it is through the Holy Spirit then who comes in us the moment we believe and receive in Jesus Christ that we begin to change. And that change is noticeable, not only to yourself, but to others as well. It's first and foremost our testimony. Sometimes our actions don't always follow what we believe, but a baby can't walk, a toddler can't run, um, but they do desire food. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says that, you know, at first we, we only drink milk or we eat milk. And then as we grow, we, we change our diet to the more meaty things. And so this change happens the more we get into the word of God. As he wrote in, in Romans 10, 17 again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our faith grows. And as our faith grows, so do we grow and change that we no longer did what we once did or do what we once did. But there's a... There's a um, I think the first purpose of why God gave us his word. You can pretty much go anywhere you want in the world and ask a question about God. Do you believe in God? And people will say yes. And who is God to you? And you will get all kinds of different understandings of who God is, who he isn't, what he does, what he doesn't do. And it's not always necessarily a description of the God of the Bible. People call themselves spiritual nowadays. 
do you go to Kwantlen College and take a course on spirituality and then you're spiritual? I don't know. I don't understand how that works. But a lot of people who don't know the first thing about the Bible or about the God of the Bible or about Jesus Christ believe they've got an understanding of who God is and, and so on and so forth. But we can't all be right. I mean, some of the stuff that people tell you about, about their God you just kind of go, where, where do you get this? Well, I just kind of, I feel that way. You know, I just, just feel that's the way it is. Well, is our faith a faith of feelings? I don't believe it is because God gave us his word so that we can know him. I don't have to make something up about God. All I have to do is look into his word and it says, God is savior. God is righteous. God is holy. God created the world, and on and on and on and on it goes. I don't have to make something up. It's in his word, and it's by his word, it's through his word that we can get to know him and to also know what pleases him, and there I say, also what displeases him. How do we live our lives? The, Bi or the psalmist says, the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Man, I wish I had found that out before I turned 28 because I would have saved myself a whole heap of trouble. I, I didn't realize it, but I was walking in darkness and I was stumbling around in a, in a pitch dark place with my eyes closed with a blindfold on thinking that I was doing the right things because it felt right. Well, guess what? My feelings didn't always turn out to be the right thing. And then I came across the word and all of a sudden, oh, I did this and yeah, God says, you know, maybe you should think about this and not, not do that. So I found out that the Bible is in fact a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Paul also calls the Bible the word of life in Philippians 2.16. Now before I became a Christian, I had done all kinds of things in order to find life, to enjoy life. You ever meet somebody who says, uh, I, I'm, I'm leaving for a while, I'm gonna go out and find myself. I wanna find out what life's all about. Hey, save them a lot of trouble, buy them a Bible and say, you wanna know about life, you wanna find yourself, read this. Because honest to goodness, I look back on my first 28 years of life and I go, that wasn't living, that was a curse. I mean, it was just, oh, the stuff that I did and, and the things that I thought would give me pleasure and only to find out that it, most of the time it blew up in my face. So there are many scriptures then that implore us to make the reading, the studying, and the memorization of scripture a matter of most importance. You know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Netflix, it, it will be there. Spend less time on that stuff and more, more time in this thing, because it, it, it will help you more than, than all the documentaries and the self-help books and stuff that, will, that you can find. So obviously, as we look through the Word of God, it's, it's obvious to anyone who does a cursory reading that God thinks, doesn't think, He knows His Word is very important to us. It's, it's the most important thing besides Christ in our lives. And so he caused it to be written down. I don't have to go find some guru on the top of a mountain, you know, navel gaze for a dozen years 
to find enlightenment. It's a lamp unto my feet, the word of God is. So he caused it to be written down so that we might know him, and not just know him, but know his ways, and also aid us in our spiritual growth as his children. Remember, the moment we receive and believe in Christ, we have the right to be called the children of God. See, that's another fallacy that's in the world today. Oh, everybody's a child of God. No, they're not. Only if you receive and believe in Jesus Christ do you then have the right to be called a child of God. Now, as a, as a father myself, I, I don't write down my instructions very often for my, for my child, but I do have the heart-to-hearts with him. And if necessary, I walk with him, and I take him and lead him in the, in the way that he should go. Sometimes I just let hands off, and I see the places that he goes to, and I go, hey, probably not a good idea. Let's talk about that a little bit more. And our Heavenly Father is the same, same kind of guy, you know? Yeah, I mean, if I can use that term loosely, our Father in Heaven. He leads us and guides us through his word. He leads us and guides us through his spirit. He's given Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior so that we might know we never have to fear death. I love the worship this morning, the songs that we were singing, reminding us. You know, it doesn't matter how, how tough life gets. He's the God that can move mountains, amen? And the biggest mountain that he removed from my life was the fear of death. Because I can look into the word of God and I can see that this life isn't, isn't everything. There's eternity waiting for me. A place which my Lord, my Savior, has gone to prepare for me. A place where there's no more tears, no more shame, no more dying. I mean, who doesn't want that? I mean, that's, that's just one of the many blessings that we receive by becoming Christians. The knowledge that we have eternal life. So with the Bible in hand then, I never need to know or wonder what it is that God desires of me. And in the years that I pastored, and I, I was mentioning it to Darcy this morning, in the years that I, that I pastored, I had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people. And quite often when they were going through difficult times, I had time to counsel them. And, and, and it, always, it always came down to, I don't know what God wants of me. I don't know what he wants me to do. I don't know what his will is. Or I'm struggling with this area of my life. And I listened to them and finally when you know, they'd finished saying everything that they could say, I would ask them. And I said, tell me, how, how often do you read the word of, of life? How often do you read the Bible? And they would admit, rarely, if ever. Do you go to church regularly? Well, a couple times a month. Do you fellowship with other believers? Who do you hang out with? Are they, are they believers? No, no, I hang out with these guys, the ones that bring him into areas that he shouldn't be going and help him to do stuff that he shouldn't be doing or she should be doing. How often do you pray? Never. How often do you, do you go to prayer meetings? Never. And, and so I try to show them, do you see a pattern here? Do you see a pattern in your life? You're struggling with this issue or these issues. 
And, and, and God who loves you beyond life itself, God who loves you, that he caused his son to be crushed for you, is, is telling you in his word, I love you so much, I want you to know what life is really like. I want you to know how hard life can be because of a curse that was placed upon creation, because of sin. And now I want to show you what I've done to overcome that. I want to move the mountain from your face or from before your eyes, and I want to show you life in the Spirit. probably one of the hardest things that a pastor can experience. When you see someone in such pain, oh, you okay there, buddy? When you see somebody in such pain and they're struggling so much in life and you shine a flashlight on why and they don't see it or they refuse to see it, or they just think they can work their way through it or out of it. Yeah, we, we can do that for a time, on occasion, but not consistently. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you, you know better, I'm not trying to tell you that, you know, you become a Christian, uh, you read the Bible, you go to church every Sunday and three times on Wednesday, and, and you go to every Bible study and to every... Uh, fellowship and so on and so forth, all of a sudden life is just going to be peaches and cream. I'm not here to tell you that. Folks, life is life. But you know, and, and this is a wonderful little illustration that Francis Chan used, and maybe you've seen this as well. Francis took out a rope, white rope, and it was, I don't know, maybe 100 feet long. And he, he said, just, just imagine this rope is eternity. Okay? And then at, the, at one end of the rope, he'd taken about... Uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 centimeters, and he painted it red. And he says, okay, this, this red portion, that's life. You spend so much time and so much effort worrying about this part of eternity when you should be thinking about eternity. And the promise of Christ, when we receive him, when we believe in him and we, we put ourselves to the task of knowing him, the promise is that he will grant us eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's not that you, you might be saved or could be saved. No, you will be saved, it says. When we put our hope, our faith, and our trust completely in Christ. So I don't need to rely on anyone else to teach me or to tell me what it is that God wants me to know. I go to God. What do you want me to know? Read this. But I don't understand that. It's okay, just keep reading. I'll reveal it for you. It might be a year or 10 or 20, but eventually he'll bring you back to that point again and go, remember when you didn't understand this? Read it again, what do you think? Now I understand. It's amazing. 
how the Holy Spirit works in us. So let's, let's go back to our text. Let's consider Josiah as an example of everything I've just said. He had been raised by others to be aware of God's existence. But it, it appears in our text up to now that he had not actually read the word of God for himself, which is what God said every king was to do, as well as make a copy of it. And I'll tell you, there, there's no greater method that I know of of getting the word into you than to write out the word of God. So if you like to journal or you just do like a, a, a daily portion of scripture and write out what it says, uh, what's God saying through it, what, what, is, what does God want to change in your life, just write all these things down. It's amazing how quickly the word of God begins to speak to you. And so he was to, as the king, when he became the king, he was to have read the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, and then he was supposed to copy it out. And that's according to Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 19. But he had never read Scripture, so he didn't know he was supposed to do that. Even the priests who were supposed to know this stuff inside out, they'd gotten so far away from the Word of God, they didn't know he was supposed to do that. So look what happens in verse 11. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law and he, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of oh, Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and uh, Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. How did he know about the wrath of God? Through the word of God. He read the portions of scripture that God warned the Israelites, if you, if you don't do this, if you don't obey me in this, then, then all of these curses will come upon you. And, and I love that portion of scripture there in verse 11, that when he heard the words of the book of the law for himself, he realized how much he had missed out on what God wanted him to do. And that's the thing, folks. When we don't involve ourselves with the work that the Lord wants us to do, we miss out on, on all kinds of things. We miss out on blessings. We, we miss out on, on seeing miracles. We miss out on knowing what, what God wants for us and of us and how much God loves us. Without the word of God, we miss what God wants us to know and it's so easy for our lives to get off track. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites according to verse 13. It says there, they had not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written. Continue on in verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Tivka, or Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. And then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burnt incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought back word to the king. That's a, that's a hard part of scripture. We, we see this one man, King Josiah, humbling himself, tearing his clothes when he heard the word of the Lord. And, and it appears to me that he was one of few who actually desired to change the way he lived. And verse 17 reminds us again that without the word of God, the people forsake God and we see them burning incense or worshiping other gods. And the same thing can happen when the Bible has no authority over us. When we just look at it and say, oh, it's just words on paper, it's, it's a book. And how do we really know that this is the word of God? All the questions that many of us have probably heard over the years that we've walked with the Lord. Some say they are Christian, but they don't have a Bible-based belief. They, they just do their own thing. But I'm a Christian. I was born in a Christian house. My grandparents were Christian. My great-grandparents were Christian. That makes me a Christian. I live in Canada. It's a Christian nation. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, I, I have found... Um, but there are those who call themselves Christians who don't have a Bible-based belief on what makes them a Christian, know what you believe, know why you believe. But they have more of, a, of an amalgam, um, a, a mixture, if you will, uh, a mishmash of different beliefs which they believe is Christianity. I've had the opportunity to travel in my life, and I've been in countries where you will find um, a high percentage of people who call themselves Christians. But when you go into their homes, you see things um, that are set up to help them in their belief that are anything but Christian. You, you will find paganism infused with Catholicism, even with Protestant Christianity, you will find infused with, with that kind of faith um, the worship of demons and other gods. I have been in churches in other countries. I know it's a church because it looks like a church. It's got a cross on, on the steeple. I've gone inside and you see an altar set up there that contains images and objects of worship that are anything but Christian. The very thing that scripture warns us against and many Christians, unfortunately, live their lives without realizing that what they think and what they say and what they do is expressly forbidden by the God of the Bible. Well, I'm my own person. I can do what I want. Yes, you can. 
suffer the consequences according to the word of God. You see, we, we have an enemy that... Uh, uh, people tend to kind of reject that idea that there is a Satan or that there is even a hell or their character they make a character out of him, you know, a little guy in a red suit with pointy ears and a tail. But we have an enemy. Our Heavenly Father, our Father who loves us so much, tells us about him. And, and, and he, can, he can represent himself as an angel of light. He can cause, if it's, if it's possible, for the very elect to wander astray. The elect believers, Okay? So don't, don't just kind of put him aside. But he will do anything to keep us from God's word, to keep us out of the Bible. He, he, man, if you're not busy enough and you decide that you're going to make the reading of the scriptures an important part after today's message, good for you. But I want to warn you, you are going to be busier than you ever thought possible. Uh, there's going to be stuff coming out of nowhere. I'm going to sit down tonight at... 7 o'clock, and I'm going to read a chapter out of the Gospel of John. 7 o'clock comes. You get a phone call from a buddy you haven't seen for a while. Off you go. There just never seems to be enough time to read the Word of God. So you have to make the reading of the Word of God a priority in your life. Because Satan wants us anywhere else but the word of God. And you know, that, that, that fallen angel, that demon, he has tried to get rid of the Bible so many times throughout history because he knows that when believers take the word of God in hand and they don't let go of it, when they make the word of God active in their life, they're invincible. By the way, did you know that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit? Yeah, we wield a very powerful weapon. This is how powerful it is, because Hebrews 4, 12, and 14 says it is a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, I tell you, there's just that one verse gives us reason not to read the Word of God because I find so often that I'm reading the Word of God and I come across something, oh, I don't like this. That means I gotta, I gotta make a change. That means I gotta think differently. I gotta do something else than I've been doing. Uh, you know, this, this sword just cuts deep. But I tell you, it's not there to kill you but it's there to kill you you know what I mean deny yourself kill die to yourself take up the cross you know which isn't a charm or a, a necklace thing or anything else it, it's an execution device anybody who took up a cross wasn't coming back and you know to know what I'm telling you is true just look around the world Oh, look in our, in our own nation. Because the Bible is banned in many, many countries. You know, I, I do count it a privilege when I come and speak to people like yourself and, I, and, I, and I'm able to ask or give the invitation, please open your Bibles. 
oh, that is such a privilege because you can go to countries in the world where you can't say that on fear of penalty of incarceration or in fear of penalty of death. Go to North Korea if you don't believe it. It's all but banned in Canada in our schools, which is interesting. There's a battle going on in, in uh, Ontario somewhere um, where the school board has allowed Muslim prayer in school. And parents have risen up and they say, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to be secular. If you don't allow Christian prayer in school, how can you allow Muslim prayer? And it's become a, a big battle. It's... You can see the, the YouTube videos on, on things that are going on. It's just, it, you shake your head. But, hey, that's the world we live in. But the, Satan has tried to keep the Bible from being available. But Satan isn't God. Satan is a created being. God isn't. And God has ensured that his word is available to anyone who desires it. I mean, we live in an age of technology, guys. We've got smartphones. We've got tablets, iPads, computers. Um, we've got dime store Bibles, you, you name it. There, there, there's no reason why we can't find the Word of God somewhere. It is still and has been for all of published history the, the, the greatest published book ever. Last week I told you about um, the funeral masks that were discovered containing papyri or portions of, of scripture. At that pastor's conference in California, it was a number of years ago, I think it was about seven or so years ago. I think Matt was there. Um, we were shown a genuine scroll of the word of God. And it was a complete copy of the first five books of the Bible. It was estimated to be between 200 and 500 years old. I mean... I've got books on my shelf that are maybe 100 years old, and they're falling apart. The paper's falling apart. This thing was, like, pristine. And it's really difficult to get a hold of an actual, genuine scroll, especially, uh, you know, four or 500 years ago, um, because what happens, the... the um, yeah. Not the belief, but the, um, how they deal with scrolls that are beginning to fall into disrepair is they bury them. And then they disintegrate, they go back to dust, and, and a new scroll is commissioned, and then so on and so forth. Um, now, the scribes who make and produce these scrolls they have precise rules and regulations as to how such scrolls are made and preserved. Can you bring up the next slide? Yeah. So here's a picture of, of all the pastors gathering around this scroll, and you can see it kind of laid out. And um, this particular scroll, the first five books of the Bible, was 73 feet long. I don't know how much that is in meters. It's, a, it's, a, it's long. 
and it was made up of 52 or 53 separate calf skins. And when they prepared the, the calf skin, or the vellum as it's called, they scrape off all the tissue and all the fat, and, and they, they turn this calf skin into something that has the consistency of paper. And it was, it was interesting. I wanted to touch this thing, and I, I, I felt it, and it was, it was so soft. It was like touching a baby's backside. You know, and, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, man, this thing is like 500 years old and it's, it's supple and it's as soft as, as can be. It's because of the way they prepare the skins. And, and the scribes then, who begin to write on these scrolls, they require, first of all, they require years of training to prepare them for their duties. Not everybody could be a scribe. You, you, had, to, you had to learn and, and prepare for years. And they had such an extreme reverence for the word of God because it was God's word. They had to memorize, first of all, they had to memorize over 4,000 laws or regulations or rules regarding the copying of the text of the Bible. And I, I, wanna, I wanna show you the 4,000 rules. No, next slide, please. Okay, here's just seven of them, okay. They could only use clean animal skins, both to write on and even to bind manuscripts. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe, and it actually, it contained lead. And that's one of the reasons why ancient scrolls are still legible to this day, because it's a metallic paint, or a metallic ink, I should say. Number four. They must verbalize each word aloud while they were writing, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. Imagine how often Jehovah is found in the first five books of the Bible. Number six, there must be a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. Now imagine working on the scroll, the first five books of the Bible, 73 feet long, and you make mistakes in the last dozen pages. The whole thing, all that work, all that effort, out the door, start all over again. Number seven, the letters, the words, and the paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. Two, two letters out of the whole scroll. If they touched each other, the whole scroll went out, out the door. The middle paragraph, word and letter, must correspond to those of the original document. Can you go to the next slide, please? So here's a, a close-up then of a paragraph, or I should say of a column. Look how precise this is. This is all done by hand. Look how, how close the letters are together. Remember, Hebrew didn't have consonants at that time. So it's, it's only, uh, consonant. it didn't have vowels, sorry. They only had consonants. So you can see that each part of each word is made up of individual letters. I can't read Hebrew, so, you know, to be honest with you, I don't even know if this is right side up. You know, because the way I took the picture, you know, so I think I got it right. I, I looked online and I looked at the Hebrew alphabet and I thought, okay, this, this looks right. So, so here, here we have just seen 
just seven of the, of, the, uh, of the 4,000 laws that they had concerning the copying of the word of God. And it is precisely because of these laws, these rules, and because of the work of scribes that we can be assured that the Bible that we have in our, have in our hand reads, for the most part, few errors here and there, nothing of consequence, but for the most part, it goes back 4,000 years. Of course, not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. And this recent discovery of Leviticus indicates this is true. Over 1,500 years, no change. It's amazing. The scribes are so precise in their craft that when you look at the scroll, it looks as if it's printed by a machine. You can go to the next slide and, oh, there you go. It's a close-up of, of the writing. Look, look how precise that is. It's all done by hand. It's amazing. Each line was precisely copied letter by letter. They were not allowed to copy by memory. And think about this. If you and I were to copy something, how do we normally do it? We, we read something, a word or a phrase, and then we turn to the paper that we're copying on, and we, by memory, we would write out the word or the phrase. And we go back and maybe double check and then read the next word or phrase and copy all that down. They weren't allowed to do that. If they, for example, were copying the 23rd Psalm, which begins with, the Lord is my shepherd, and they came to the, to the word shepherd, well, all the words in there, but let's say shepherd, each of the words of that phrase would be read letter by letter. And so, if they copied shepherd, they would look like this. They would go S, S, H, H, E, E. That's how they would do it, letter by letter. It's, it's a, I mean, it boggles my mind, the painstaking process of doing this. It's estimated that the scroll that we saw at the conference took more than a year to complete. Who knows if there were any mistakes made and that the scroll that we looked at was actually the second or the third copy of the original document. There's absolutely nothing for us to believe that what we have, what we call the Bible today, is anything but the word as originally put down by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, many try to put down the Bible by saying things like the Bible's full of mistakes, we can't be sure what the original document said, or, or whatever. It's because of this kind of work, that kind of work that we looked at, that we can be sure today that we have the Bible as originally written down. Nobody today would refute that Julius Caesar existed. But did you know that the documentary evidence of his existence is found in only 10 manuscripts? There's only 10 manuscripts that talk about Julius Caesar. Of course, there's other evidences as well, but the manuscript evidence for Julius Caesar is only 10 manuscripts. The earliest copy, which dates back to 900 AD, or more than 900 years after the original was written. We also believe that the ancient author Homer existed. You know, the guy that wrote the Iliad, not, not the Homer of Homer Simpson. Okay, the guy who wrote the Iliad. There are only 643 known copies of the Iliad with the earliest copy dating to about 400 BC or 500 years after the original manuscript was written. 
but no one questions that Homer exists. However, there are many who call into question the Old and New Testament scriptures. Yet, there are over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, some dating back to 130 AD, and if, as I expressed last week, if what they found in that funerary mask is one of the first copies of Matthew, it could date back to 70 AD, or 30 years after the original was written, approximately. The Old Testament has many thousands more manuscripts. And as I told you at the beginning of our service this morning, they are finding more and older every day. So all told, we have over 50,000 manuscripts that attest that the Bible we hold today is accurate to the originals. It's really amazing when you think about it. I mean, really, you know. There's no other ancient writing that has as many manuscripts uh, um, attesting to the accuracy or to its accuracy as the Bible has. And, and more and more manuscripts are being found every day or every year. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's been true for over 4,000 years. Why do we doubt it? God has sustained his word and, be, and we can be sure that we have his unchanged word in our hands. What we have isn't the word of man explaining the existence of God, but we have the word of God revealed to man by which we can know God. So it is important not only to receive the word, but to know the word and to believe it. And it's why I believe Calvary Chapel exists. Calvary Chapel teaches the, the word the way we do, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And it's, I think, vitally important as Calvary Chapel that we don't lose sight of that fact. That the centrality of our, of our philosophy of ministry is Jesus Christ, the word of God. And we place a, a great emphasis on the Bible, and that's as it should be. I think it's really what makes Calvary Chapel unique. And I, I don't want to stand here and say, yay, Calvary, because there are other churches that also teach the word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Good for them. But we need more churches to do that. And every Calvary Chapel that I've been in, and, and it's a number, um, around the world, they all teach the Bible the way we do here at CTK, how we did in Richmond, how we do in Langley. Um, and I, I truly believe that the job of the pastor is to ensure that you are the best fed, best cared for, best loved sheep that exist. That, that, that's the primary function of the pastor. To know the word, to prepare his heart to teach the word, to teach you guys the word, and for you to see that the word is important to the pastor, and if it's important to the pastor, it ought to be important to me. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, and we'll be closing. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Pray. Pray that Calvary Chapel, pray that CTK will always be centered on Jesus. 
and that you have a, a, a man in the pulpit who believes that with all his heart and believes that the word of God is the word of God. That is Calvary's vision. That is our purpose. And it's our distinctive. Let's pray.